I think you all know that I'm Clark Irvin, a member of the Forum Committee. Thank you very much for being here on this snowy and foggy, or at least it was earlier, uh, winter morning here uh, in Washington. Uh, those of you who are parishioners and or regular forum goers know that we began a tradition here at the church some years back of marking February, which of course is President's Month, by focusing on the life and times of a given president. Since we are, of course, the Church of the Presidents, and every president since Madison has worshiped with us at least once during his tenure. Um, so we chose this year to feature the presidency of Gerald R. Ford, our nation's 38th president. And I'm delighted to welcome as our speaker this morning, Donald Holloway, the curator of the Gerald R. Ford Presidential Museum in Grand Rapids, the president's hometown. Donald Holloway came to the Ford Presidential Museum in 1996. Since then, he has helped to shape over 60 exhibits, serving as the co-curator or the lead curator on many of them, including the Gerald R. Ford Centennial Exhibit called Growing Up Grand, and most recently, In Step with Betty Ford, a celebration of Mrs. Ford's centennial. Donald earned his bachelor's degree in history and political science from Oklahoma Baptist University, and his master's in historical administration from the University of Kansas. Uh, please join me in welcoming Don Holloway. Thank you. It's an honor to be here um, and to be asked to speak here. Thank you, uh, Clark, for uh, the invitation and for sticking with it. We had a, we had a bit of a, a challenge effecting this because of the uh, government shutdowns. When the government shutdowns occur, then that interrupts a lot of things in the pipeline, including travel. Uh, and so whether or not I was going to be able to be here was left to powers more powerful than we, uh, and uh, we were able to, to work that out. Um, Can I just hold that microphone? I think people will be able to hear a little better if you... If I hold it? Yeah. Is it... Or just bring a little closer. Perfect. Is that all right? Yeah. Is that better? Okay. All right, then let's do this. Uh, as I say, it's an honor to be able to speak here at St. John's. It's an, it was an honor also to fly in from Grand Rapids and to bring with me some of Michigan's weather and share it uh, with you. Uh, the, the, uh, uh, I've got about a foot of snow in my yard. I figured Washington should have some as well, I suppose. Uh, but anyway, it's supposed to be a beautiful day today. Let's, uh, uh, let's see how that works out. Um, it's uh, President's Day weekend. Um, those of us who fancy ourselves something of uh, uh, presidential historians, though, continue to recognize it as George Washington's birthday. We celebrate that. We'll pull in Abraham Lincoln because he has a February birthday also, but really it's the general's uh, uh, birthday that we celebrate. And it was um, he and his fellow founders who handed us this nation and who told future generations that our type of government requires of its citizens a certain measure of virtue. Washington put it this way, the general government can never be in danger of denigrating into a monarchy, an oligarchy, an aristocracy, or any despotic or oppressive form so long as there is any virtue in the body of the people. Instilling that virtue into the people, leavening the body politic with virtue is in no small part the responsibility that St. John's has shouldered for over 200 years. So we're thankful that it's here. 
Congressman Ford and his family worshiped with their fellow congregants at Emmanuel on the Hill uh, Episcopal Church in Alexandria, where Betty Ford did her part in to nurture that virtue by teaching Sunday school. And so it, um, it came as something of a surprise to Betty and to Jerry after they moved into the White House that their own virtue was questioned. Word passed from the White House to the press to the public that the new president and first lady were sharing the same bedroom. <laughs> An arrangement that broke with the long-held tradition of separate bedrooms and shattered the delicate sensibilities held by many of their fellow Americans who sent intemperate letters and made spleen-venting uh, phone calls to the White House. This particularly caught Mrs. Ford off guard. When questioned about it by a magazine writer, Betty expressed her own shock. They had never slept in separate bedrooms. They were not going to start now just because they had moved into the White House. Separate bedrooms was, she thought, a silly idea. That would mean, she explained, I would have to walk into another room. And the press asked so many questions, she told the journalist. I half expected them to ask how often my husband and I slept together. What would you have said, the optimistic journalist <laughs> asked. Well, Mrs. Ford replied with her signature candor, as often as I can. When this, too, made news, the ratio of negative to positive messages coming into the White House flipped in Mrs. Ford's favor. Americans, by and large, came to love the plain-spoken and outspoken Betty Ford, whose centennial we celebrate this year. But that's really not what I came to talk about. <laughs> um, this is Sunday, and we're in church, and I thought perhaps we'd talk about Gerald Ford and prayer. Uh, Gerald Ford was a religious man, and that is a topic not often explored with him. He's too little explored to begin with, but to the extent that he has been explored, religion has not factored into it largely. There have been a few historians who've tackled some parts of it, and I thought for the little bit of time that we have here today, I might look at that. And so I'm taking us to the last day of November, 1974, when President Gerald Ford found himself on the horns of a dilemma. He was at JFK Stadium in Philadelphia, the first president to attend the Army-Navy game since the stadium's namesake took in the contest 12 years earlier. Ford, 40 years removed from his own gridiron exploits, loved college football. But his new role as commander-in-chief demanded the pablum of what was called inter-service equality. Now, such bipartisan spirit-making might fit on Capitol Hill, and Ford was a master of it. But it was a hard pill for him to swallow on the football field. Still, for one half of the game, Ford dutifully sat on Navy's side of the stadium, and for the other half, on Army's. Ford's relationship with the Black Knight's brass was at times strained, given his years of service in the House Armed Services Appropriations Subcommittee overseeing the Army's budget. He felt far more at home with the midshipmen, having become a Navy officer in 1942 after training at Annapolis for one month. 
He then served aboard an aircraft carrier for much of the war in the Pacific, so Ford's loyalties were firmly anchored to Navy's fate. Now he stood at midfield. His large win button promoting his inflation-fighting campaign had been removed from his lapel and replaced with two smaller buttons, one emblazoned Army, the other Navy. As he would later explain during, uh, as he would later explain, duty demanded that he root for both teams, but as he later confessed, his prayers were reserved for only one. <laughs> and they were answered. Navy blanked Army 19 to nothing. Gerald Ford believed in the power of prayer. He had been taught its importance by his parents, his stepfather, the straightest man I ever knew, he said, and his mother, the woman he loved more than any other except his wife, Betty. Gerald Ford Sr. and Dorothy Ford raised their children in the Episcopal Church, which in their day was known as the Republican Party at prayer. Ford's name is the response to a Jeopardy line. This United States president was born a king. At his birth in Omaha, Nebraska on July 14, 1913, he was named after his birth father, Leslie King. King Sr. was an, an ill-tempered and abusive man. Two weeks after the birth of their son, Dorothy King, clutching her child, fled from Leslie. Five months later, an Omaha judge granted her a divorce. Three years later, she married a Grand Rapids paint salesman named Gerald Ford. Though time and distance separated her from the brutish Leslie King, Dorothy found she was not fully free from his influence. Her son, to her disappointment, had inherited her birth father's, his birth father's temper. Dorothy would spend the remainder of Junior's years at youth, teaching him to master his tantrums rather than to be mastered by them. She used a variety of strategies to instill this discipline in her son. Important among them was memorizing passages from the Bible. One in particular stood out from the book of Proverbs, chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not into your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your path. Ford would tell more than one interviewer that he offered that passage in prayer at important times in his life. To underscore its significance, the Bible that his wife Betty held when Congressman Ford was sworn in as vice president and eight months later when he was sworn in as president was open to that passage. For all of that, however, Gerald Ford was reluctant to talk about his religion in public. He told reporters that his was, and I quote, a deep personal faith I rely on for guidance from my God. And then to encourage a different topic, he quickly added, my conviction is very personal. I am most reluctant to speak or write about it publicly. Indeed, trying to find religion in Gerald Ford's 13 congressional campaigns would prove just as fruitless as searching for God's pleasure among the rulers of the 10 northern tribes of divided Israel. Ford made it a practice never to make religion an issue. Sure, you'll find the obligatory God bless America and one nation under God in his speeches. He would often tip his hat to mid 20th century America's civic religion. But Ford, an Episcopalian running in a heavily Calvinist district, was loath to make it personal. Not necessarily because he feared getting crosswise with his Dutch constituents, 
but because he valued religion too much to sully it in the rough and tumble of politics. That said, when not campaigning and at moments freighted with political and moral weight, Ford leaned carefully and pointedly on his religion and on the potency of prayer. His convictions were on display almost 44 years ago when in the East Room of the White House, only a, only a block removed from here, he spoke to his fellow Americans after being sworn in as the nation's 38th president. It was during a time he said that troubles our hearts and uh, troubles our minds and hurts our hearts. And it was to those hurting hearts he appealed as much as to those troubled minds. Only seven sentences into his remarks, he asked Americans, none of whom had elected him by his ballot, to confirm me as your president with your prayers. He added, I hope those prayers will be the first of many. If, however, we remember a line from that speech, it is this one. My fellow Americans, our long national nightmare is over. This nightmare had prompted millions of Americans to call for, he said, righteous action, for justice to correct the wrongs done by those to whom they had entrusted great responsibility and power. Right after speaking that memorable line, the new president reminded his fellow Americans that a higher power, by whatever name we honor him, ordains not only righteousness, but love not only justice, but mercy. Having called love and mercy to the forefront, Ford asked for more prayers, not for himself, but for Richard Nixon and his family. May our former president, who brought peace to millions, find it for himself, Ford prayed. May God bless and comfort his wonderful wife and daughters, whose love and loyalty will forever be a shining legacy to all who bear the lonely burdens of the White House. Whatever love, whatever mercy Ford pleaded, uh, Ford's pleading stirred that day was short-lived among most Americans when one month into his administration, Ford granted Nixon a full, free, and absolute pardon. It was a Sunday morning, September 8, 1974. After breakfast, the president left the White House and motored to this church. Here he prayed and listened to the minister's homily. Afterward, he returned to the White House and spent much of the remainder of the morning informing cabinet members and congressional leaders of his intention. Then, just before noon, he spoke to the nation from the Oval Office. He told the American people that, guided by his conscience, he had reached a decision. It was his and his alone. Then he repeated a line that he had included in his swearing-in remarks both for the vice presidency and the presidency. He was determined to do what was right as God gives me to see the right, reminding his fellow citizens that he had asked them to pray for him. He now explained that while the Constitution is the supreme law of our land and it governs our actions as citizens, only the laws of God who govern our consciences are superior to it. As we are a nation under God, he said, so I am sworn to uphold our laws with the help of God. And I have sought such guidance 
and searched my own conscience with special diligence to determine the right thing for me to do with respect to my predecessor in this place, Richard Nixon, and his loyal wife and family. The debate over the former president's fate had been, in Ford's words, bitter and divisive. It threatened to drag on for a long time through the courts, stoking our ugly passions and threatening our free institutions of government, he said. As president, he explained, my primary concern must always be for the greatest good of all the people of the United States, whose servant I am. As a man, he continued, my first consideration is to be true to my own convictions, my own conscience. Ford concluded his explanation with two statements of belief. I do believe that right makes might, and that if I am wrong, ten angels swearing I am right would make no difference. I do believe with all my heart and mind and spirit that I, not as president, but as a humble servant of God, will receive justice without mercy if I fail to show mercy. Ford then granted that full, free, and absolute pardon to Richard Nixon. President Ford's speech was, in many respects, every bit as much a national sermon as was President Abraham Lincoln's second inaugural address. Ford believed that as president, he had a duty to the nation. As a man, he had a duty to God. In this act, in his effort to heal the nation from its grievous wound, the two responsibilities were drawn into clear focus in Ford's mind. At the time, the people of the United States were not of the same mind. Many, including his press secretary, objected. Ford's approval numbers, measured by opinion polls, plummeted. That Sunday morning, they hovered north of 70%. By Monday, they had fallen below 50%. Yet Ford never wavered from his decision. In his final poll, taken on Election Day, November 2nd, 1976, he fell by a fraction of a percentage point from securing a term as president in his own right. As the decades passed, Nixon labored to rehabilitate himself. Books about the crisis were written by the score, and new assessments were formed. And the nation began to reconsider Ford's decision. The sea change of judgment was all but completed when, in 2001, the John F. Kennedy Foundation presented Gerald Ford with its prestigious Profile in Courage Award. Senator Ted Kennedy, once Ford's fiercest critic of the Nixon pardon, handed him the award, saying, time has a way of clarifying past events, and now we see that President Ford was right. His courage and dedication to our country made it possible for us to begin the process of healing and put the tragedy of Watergate behind us. Perhaps we should leave the final word to one of President Ford's toughest political adversaries, and a man Ford counted as a good friend, Tip O'Neill, who served as House Majority Leader during Ford's years in the White House. In his memoir, O'Neill told his readers that God has been good to America, especially during difficult times. At the time of the Civil War, he gave us Abraham Lincoln. And at the time of Watergate, he gave us Gerald Ford, the right man at the right time, who was able to put our nation together again. 
But those assessments would be incomplete, would be as incomplete as they would be unfulfilling if we overlook Gerald Ford's belief in the power of prayer, to which he repeatedly called his fellow Americans, which guided him in important decisions, and which would be to him a key part of that civic virtue that George Washington spoke of. How effective was that power of prayer for President Ford? Let this be at least one measure. In the three college football seasons of his presidency, Navy won each of its games against Army, <laughs> outscoring the Black Knights by a cumulative count of 87 to 16. Thank you. So President Ford was always on campus at the University of Michigan. Anyone my age or older probably met him more than once because he loved to come back to Michigan and do various things. Our School of Public Policy is now the Ford School. My question is, uh, we have the Gerald Ford Library, I believe, or part of it on campus in Ann Arbor. What do you have in Grand Rapids? Did, he, did you split the artifacts? Do we have more of the papers? I'm just a little, and also I think the Michigan football team did very well when he was president as well, so he must have been pleased about that. Gerald Ford followed the, uh, the Wolverines for his, the entirety of his life. One of the proud moments was that they were at the Rose Bowl in the year he died. Uh, and he died on December 26, uh, 2006. And the team, through Herculean efforts, was able to get the band back to Grand Rapids so that they could greet the body of the former president when he returned. Uh, and so it was a stirring moment to, uh, for, because he didn't want hail to the chief played when he was president. He wanted hail to the victors <laughs> played. Uh, and that's what he got when, uh, when he was president. Um, the, um, uh, the modern presidential library system begins with uh, Franklin Roosevelt. Herbert Hoover was brought into it a little later on through the uh, agency of uh, President Truman. Uh, so each of these presidential libraries are salted around the United States. Ours is the one that is, has a split facility. The library is on the north campus of the University of Michigan. The museum is in Grand Rapids, the seat of his congressional district for 25 years. Um, and it came about simply because of the way he came to the presidency. He was minority leader and he agreed with the University of Michigan to begin depositing his papers, his congressional papers, with the Bentley uh, Library on campus. Uh, and so he began doing that. And when he became vice president, well, he just extended the agreement to cover his vice presidential papers. But then he becomes president and now he has an opportunity to build a presidential library. Uh, and so he doesn't want to renege on the agreement he has with his alma mater. Uh, so he extends that to cover his presidential papers and to to build a library on campus there, but he sees an opportunity to do something for his hometown, Grand Rapids, and so he builds his museum there. It was out of the generosity of his heart, hopefully no other presidential library will be split. It, wasn't, it, it doesn't, it, it, it has its challenges. It presents its challenges that others don't face. When I want to dig around in the archives to find these stories, I have to, I have to travel to Ann Arbor, 130 miles, and, uh, and probably get a hotel room and dig around in the archives. 
Were I at any other presidential library, I would walk upstairs or just across the compound uh, and, uh, and dig in those uh, archives. So it's a challenge. Uh, but we are proud to be on the campus of the University of Michigan and to be in Grand Rapids. I went rummaging through my closets and boxes that we all keep, anyone who's been around Washington for a long time. This is a staff pen for the uh, 76, so, you know, campaign. This is a, a letter saying that I did it. And um, the main thing that was fun about that was is that, um, you know, in the days when we don't want to say somebody is a nice man because somehow or other that doesn't seem strong, well, he was the perfect example, I think, of anything else you can say about him, is he was the number one nice man in Washington. And that's exactly what the country needed at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, the, so you worked in the, the 76 campaign? Yeah. Is that right? <laughs> I've done uh, six Republican presidential campaigns. I'm sorry? I've done six Republican presidential campaigns. But that's where I started. Yeah, the, um, that was... Um, quite a challenge for him, because he had, he had told Betty that 1974 would be his last congressional campaign, and they would retire in 76, and she was looking forward to that. Of course, history intervened, uh, and, and then as soon as he became president, the idea began to tumble around in his mind that he would run in his own right, particularly when he saw, I can do this job. Uh, uh, I, I'm up to the task of doing this job. Um, Mrs. Ford saw that in him, and she was very supportive of it. In that uh, 76 campaign, the primary part of it, when he was running, uh, when he was challenged by Governor uh, Reagan, it was Mrs. Ford who bore most of the responsibility of campaigning. They, in, they employed what they called the, the Rose Garden strategy. And President Ford stayed um, in the White House largely, and Mrs. Ford hit the campaign trail uh, and uh, did very well. And still the only person to have defeated Ronald Reagan in a head-to-head -head campaign. Um, the, uh, uh, and then the general election. She suffered from arthritis uh, and from a pinched nerve in her neck. And she wore herself out in that primary. And so she didn't campaign as much in the general election. And Ford fell short in the general election. Uh, those of us on the inside, you should have had Betty out there. <laughs> I grew up in Grand Rapids, and Jerry Ford was my congressman for many, many, many years. Could you say something about his relationship with um, Jimmy Carter? I, th I think they both get such high marks for the careers they created after the presidency, but how did their relationship change over the years? It began strained uh, and then uh, morphed into something quite different. Um, if you look at those election, rec the, the campaign records, um, you know, Governor Carter comes out of virtually nowhere. Uh, to um, seize the nomination and then uh, to win the election. And I think the Fords were stunned by that. A lot of people were stunned uh, by that. Um, and, uh, if, and they had to process that. Um, and the, uh, um, President Carter didn't ask President Ford to do a lot 
during Carter's four years. It was actually during the Reagan years that they began to reconcile, and it was after the assassination of Anwar Sadat. Um, President Reagan asked President Nixon and President Ford and President Carter to fly to Egypt for the funeral to represent the United States. They did. Um, and that was something of a chilly airplane ride. Um, there was one moment in it where the, the Secret Service, the Air Force One crew, wanted to get the presidents together for a photograph to commemorate this historic event. And uh, the idea was floated around, and somebody came to President Ford, asked him if he, he would do it, and he said, sure, uh, just let me know where I need to be. And somebody asked President Nixon in another cabin, uh, would you be willing to do this? And he, he consented, yes, we'll do this. Somebody asked President Carter, no. He wasn't, he didn't want to do it. And so they, that person had to go back to President Ford and say, well, I guess it's not going to happen because President Carter doesn't want it to happen. Ford had a colorful metaphor uh, for that experience. I'm not going to repeat it in church. Um, <laughs> something about making chicken salad out of chicken something. But um, after that, they, they, he was able to turn that around. They got the photograph made. And, the, and Ford and Carter realized they kind of liked one another after that. And they formed a relationship that extended for the rest of his life. Um, and of, of course, President Carter was one of the eulogists um, at his uh, service at Grace Episcopal uh, in Grand Rapids. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and it was a relationship uh, they, were, uh, they were proud of. Uh, Rosalind Carter and Betty uh, Ford worked together on a number of issues on mental health, on uh, children's health, um, and uh, on other causes. Uh, so it was a rich relationship, and one that's deserving of a book, uh, by the way. I recall that during the presidential debates, uh, President Ford was uh, criticized for his characterization of Russia's relationship with Eastern Europe. Talk, if you could, for a moment about how he approached the Soviet Union during his presidency or, and, and, and Russia. He comes to the presidency during a period of detente, um, something that was formed before him uh, that began to take shape after the um, uh, Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, and then was developed further during the Johnson administration, uh, taken to a new level during the Nixon administration, and then that was what was handed to Ford, which was kind of odd because President Ford um, cut his teeth as a Harry Truman cold warrior. Uh, Truman was one of the presidents that Ford admired. He took him to task on a number of uh, issues in the political rough and tumble, um, but it, on a, at, for his foreign policy, Ford admired that. So Ford was, uh, grew up politically as a tough-minded person uh, dedicated to fighting, to containing the, uh, the growth of the Soviet Union. Um, he, uh, though, enters the presidency in an era of detente. It's when we have the, uh, the linking of the Soyuz capsule uh, with, the, um, with the Apollo capsule, the last big Apollo mission. Uh, and probably 
uh, epitomized uh, by that. Uh, it was the hammering out of the Helsinki Accords uh, at the time, which he was uh, vehemently criticized for within his own party for having gone there to finalize um, those, um, those accords. Um, so there were, uh, he, uh, he goes to Vladivostok uh, to talk with uh, Brezhnev uh, and um, to work out, to push uh, strategic arms limitations control to the next level. Um, so he's working with the Soviet Union. He's, he's taken a tour of uh, Eastern Europe. And so when they come to that second debate, uh, the Carter, Carter and uh, Ford revived the debates that had laid dormant since Nixon-Kennedy uh, in 1960. And he'd come to that second debate and he's asked that question about Soviet hegemony in Eastern Europe. And he responds that there is no Soviet domination of Eastern Europe and there never will be during a Ford administration. And somebody backstage says, uh, we might have a problem there. And so soon after, the, the, the fellow who asked, the, the journalist who asked the question gives him an opportunity to restate, uh, to rethink, and he doesn't, he just forges ahead. And so they pull him aside afterwards and say, we might need to issue some clarifying remarks on this. And what Ford had heard himself say was that the United States does not recognize the legitimacy of Soviet hegemony over these Eastern European countries, they have a right of self-determination. Wasn't quite what he said. Uh, but he had been in Eastern Europe a number of times. He'd made trips throughout Europe as a, a, a member of the um, uh, Defense Appropriations Subcommittee looking at uh, military installations. He knew what he thought he said. And that bullheadedness that he inherited from Leslie King, his birth father, asserts itself here, and it takes them uh, almost two weeks to come out with clarifying remarks, which is just too late, in key districts around the United States where Eastern Europeans have settled and where their descendants live, and that hurt him in the election, almost as much as the pardon hurt him in the election. Yeah, I'm a former Senate president in Puerto Rico, and we commissioned a statue of Gerald Ford. Uh, Reverend Mike Ford went and unveiled it, and there were tears in his eyes because we did the statue correctly. Uh, and we did it for two reasons. First, because he was one of nine presidents that has visited Puerto Rico, at, or nine then that had visited Puerto Rico. And second, because he uh, filed a Puerto Rico statehood bill way before statehood had a majority in Puerto Rico. So he really believed in that. So we're not going to make the 10th one, but we're not going to sh show the person throwing any uh, paper towel rolls at the, at the public. <laughs> I'm sorry, I didn't catch the last part. And, I, and it was the we have nine statues, including Gerald Ford. Yes. We're now commissioning the 10th statue, but the polls will not be throwing paper towels at the people. When uh, President uh, John Kennedy comes to Congress in 1946, and he has a room uh, that is just across the hall from the office that Ford would occupy uh, when Ford comes to Congress two years later. Um, and Kennedy and Ford liked one another. Uh, they, um, uh, they often walked to Capitol Hill uh, together as young congressmen. Of course, in the next election cycle, Kennedy goes into the Senate. Um, the first person to greet Ford when he takes the oath, uh, the congressional oath of office um, uh, on the um, House floor 
is a young congressman from California, Richard Nixon. Uh, and they strike up a, f a friendship. They will be charter members of the founding of the Chowder and Marching Club um, on Capitol Hill uh, together. Um, so here he is with Kennedy, um, whom he counts a friend. And Ford is famous for having said that uh, I have many political adversaries. I have no political enemies. Um, he, uh, uh, he would take people on on political grounds but he said, I always look for the good in people. And he said, sometimes with some people, that's very hard to find. <laughs> but he says, I look for it and I latch onto it and, I've, and that's what I want to nurture in that person, in the relationship between him and me. And he had been taught that by his parents uh, growing up, look for the good in people. And so, and he found much good in uh, Kennedy and in uh, Nixon. Um, he helps Nixon campaign. Of course, he and Nixon are the same party. And then, so in 1960, when you come to that campaign, here he has uh, essentially two friends running for the presidency. Of course, he's going to campaign hard for Richard Nixon. This is one of the unwritten stories that needs to be explored a little more fully. Ford was offered as the favorite son candidate in 1960 for the vice presidency. It was more than that. It was close. Ford was close to being selected as Nixon's vice president. Nixon went with Lodge, of course, in 1960. I'm not sure that helped him. Uh, but, uh, and if there are any Lodge fans in here, I apologize for that. There are reasons uh, for me saying that beyond any criticism of Lodge. Um, uh, but, uh, of course, Kennedy wins that. Uh, and Kennedy and Ford enjoy something of a special relationship. You will find, let me just offer one example of that. There was a big gala event that was thrown by the Kennedys at Mount Vernon, um, a huge dinner. Um, there, uh, there were certain political leaders that were invited to that. Ford was just moving into leadership positions in the House at that time, and he was invited to that dinner, he and Betty. And Betty sits at a table just across from uh, Jackie Kennedy. Ford sits off at another table uh, under the tent on the lawn at uh, Mount Vernon. Uh, and uh, and the, the soiree begins, and it's over. And Ford um, and Betty think that they are traveling back to Washington on Vice President Johnson's yacht. But Kennedy pulls him off of that boat and says, no, you're riding back with me. And it was just a small handful of people um, on Kennedy's yacht, and Ford, the only Republican among them, who rides back to Washington with the president. And, they, and Kennedy had a sense that it was Ford he needed to cultivate to help move his agenda on Capitol Hill. They weren't always going to agree, but it was um, that sort of effort that he extended to him uh, to cultivate that relationship. Uh, historical ironies, of course, Ford is um, one of two House members selected by President Johnson to serve as one of the Warren Commissioners, one of the seven Warren Commissioners to investigate the um, assassination of President Kennedy. Uh, so Ford was the last surviving member of the Warren Commission and stood by its findings for the entirety of his life. Um, so uh, he, he counted Kennedy as a, uh, as a political adversary but as a close friend.
Thank you. Could you speak briefly on the role of swimming in Ford's life, and did the Ford children participate in a swim program? I'm sorry, the role swimming. of what? Uh, swimming in Ford's life? <laughs> Ford uh, swam on the YMCA team in Grand Rapids when he was in high school. Uh, Ford was a multi-talented athlete. He was a natural athlete. Um, he loved uh, the um, rough and tumble of um, athletics and the competitiveness. He was, an, he was a supremely competitive person. Um, and so uh, he, he played, uh, he was an all-star football player in, in high school. He was, um, uh, he excelled at track and field. He, he was um, a starter on the basketball team in high school. And then he was a swimmer for the city team, for the YMCA um, city team. Um, and then of course he goes into the Navy. Uh, swimming benefits him there. The, um, uh, however, he, swimming was something that he, um, that he did to start his day. He builds a swimming pool at his house in Alexandria. Um, they have a swimming pool built in the White House um, that he uh, partakes of there. Uh, as he grows older and his joints ache from all of the youthful activity, uh, and as he's contemplating knee replacements and things of that nature, um, he swims all the more. Uh, one, of the, uh, um, one of the incidents that marks his post-presidency was around this big pool that he built at his house in Rancho Mirage, California. He's walking one day and one of his grandchildren think that oh, this would be fun. She pushes grandpa into the pool. Uh, in, in all of his clothes. Grandpa doesn't think that's fun. It's one of the moments where his temper, which he, he fought for all of his life to control, flashes out, and then he's a little embarrassed by that. Afterwards, um, the granddaughter, to assuage things, writes Grandpa a poem about the incident, and he hangs that on his office wall. Um, in, uh, so when you walked into his office uh, in his uh, uh, in his, at his home in, Grand, uh, in um, Rancho Mirage. That's, one of, that's actually the first thing that would greet you was that poem that uh, his granddaughter wrote. So swimming was uh, uh, near and dear to him for reasons beyond just the exercise that it gave. It was also a way for him to uh, develop relationships with, um, with his grandkids. Everyone, please join me in thanking you. Thank you very much.